That's one of the things they talk mm -hmm. about in the Maslow's hierarchy, right? It was the need to be safe. It is primal to so much of life. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I do think while all the seven desires are so important, if this one is not present and, you know, um, kind of undergirding us, then it throws so much out of whack. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. I'm Randy Everett, your co-host, and we're here again today with our host, Dr. Greg Miller. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a cold day in Chicago. Well, it's a cold day in Minneapolis, too, <laughs> but uh, that's not going to deter us from uh, marching on with the podcast. And we're very lucky to have with us today, Debbie Laser and Beth Miller. So, uh, I believe you, you're familiar with both of them. I so am. This ought to go smoothly. Uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to launch a new series of podcasts that uh, we're quite excited about, and they're based around the principles of safety. And so we thought we would start it off with Debbie and Beth uh, talking with Greg about uh, safety uh, for women who have been betrayed uh, and other aspects of, uh, of that uh of that principle. So uh, Greg, go ahead and, and get us started. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the idea for this series of podcasts came from staff meetings where we were consistently raising the issue of safety and we are aware of how often we talk to our clients about safety, how important it is. So it just made sense for us to set some time aside to really go after this in a more extended way. And so we are glad that Deb and Beth are with us. And since this is the first one, we're going to just start by talking a little bit about what safety is, what safety isn't, and why it is important. And, you know, Deb, we can start with you because in the book that you and Mark wrote, The Seven Desires, you identified one of our basic desires is this desire to be safe. And so how did that come about for y'all? How did that conversation even begin? Well, the book actually began when we began looking at all the issues that brought up arguments with couples. And uh, when we started kind of dumbing them down to what was really the issue, um, the issue oftentimes was one that we would call a desire to be safe. And when we defined that, what we were saying was that it's really our desire to be free of anxiety and fear, um, the desire to, uh, to, to know what's happening in our life so we're not surprised by things, that we know that we can take care of ourselves, that it won't be too dangerous, we'll be able to manage things. And when you think about it, this is a desire everybody has, both men and women. Um, and children, for yeah. sure, this is not just an adult thing. Mm -hmm. And um, right. in, in fact, it's such a primal desire because our bodies have been created by God in such a way that we have a system uh, to help us respond to things that are dangerous and that would create fear in us. And thankfully, that's a really good thing that we carry around with us mm -hmm. all the time because there is danger in the world and we want to be aware of when we need to do something to respond to that. So Typically, when we're in a dangerous situation, we'll respond with that that fight or flight or freeze situation. I've added another one myself, which is please, which is if we please somebody well enough, maybe they'll 
calm down and be safer for us so that we don't have to be so afraid. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, going along with the alliteration of fight, fly, freeze, we've heard the idea of fawn, mm -hmm. which is very much what you're talking about, to placate or to please so that we can be safe given somebody else's reaction. Right. Right. You know, I, I know we don't prioritize the seven desires and this safety really does seem foundational that if this isn't in place, it really is difficult to navigate any of the others because like you said, our bodies mm -hmm. were created to gravitate towards safety and to be alert when there is a threat or a, per a perceived threat. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. you think about it, um, I'm sorry, Beth, I'm kind of jumping on you. Now. No, you go ahead. Think about yeah. it, our, our desire to be safe covers so many things. I mean, it covers our desire to have enough money, for instance, to know that we'll be able to pay for things and take care of ourselves and pay for our homes that we're living in our apartments. Um, it, it covers our health. When we have issues of health, that creates fear sometimes. When we think about the end of life or, or issues of death, we think of that. And probably one of the biggest issues of safety is the fear of being all alone. And that's why mm -hmm. abandoning situations where we are left um, are, are so scary for most of us too. And so, um, you know, safety covers so many things and they are so basic, as you say, foundational to our life uh, mm -hmm. that I, I know even some of our original psychologists talked about that as being one of the first things we need to attend to if we're gonna help somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I was taken back to, you know, a freshman psychology class in college where that's one of the things they talk mm -hmm. about in the Maslow's hierarchy, right? It was the need to be safe. It is primal to so much of life. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I do think while all the seven desires are so important, if this one is not present and, you know, um, kind of undergirding us, then it throws so much out of whack. Mm -hmm. Well, and kind of the one of the ways I talk about safety is this idea that safety is the absence of a threat, either real or perceived. And so if I'm experiencing a real threat, kind of Deb, as you said, there is a physiological reaction that occurs that my body goes into to try to create safety. What's also true, though, is there doesn't have to be a threat. I can just perceive the threat and my body will go into the same reaction. And what's true, I think, is as children, the threats that we experience are real. And that's why we have the reactions that we do. But because of the real threat, later in life, we have a hypervigilant to threats. So we start to perceive threats where they may not be there. Mm -hmm. And so it's this idea of safety is created when we aren't living in a circumstance where we feel like there is a threat or we perceive that there could be a threat. Mm -hmm. That's why it becomes important, I believe, Greg, that um, we look at someone's life story because really as we look at stories and even very early life experiences, we begin to put together where for some people there are very many more threats or perceived threats than there are for others. And their response mm -hmm. and therefore the anxiety they carry around in the memories of their own brains is much different for, for some who have had many more experiences like that. If you've grown up 
in an environment where there has not been a lot of safety. Uh, maybe there is addiction issues there or anger management issues or abandoning issues, parents that aren't there for you when you're young. There are lots of things that develop that create this hypervigilance that you can carry along with you in your life as an adult. There's just some great research um, in our field. It's called the attachment theory, where there's been a lot of research for many years looking at children and how caregivers either provided for them a secure environment or did not, under the age of five primarily. And from those studies, they recognize that when a child was taken care of, was attended to, that needs were taken care of, that they ideally developed with what, with what we would call a secure attachment. Um, or in other words, another way to say that is the child felt safe. Uh, there are many, mm -hmm. many children, mm -hmm. however, that don't have that kind of environment and therefore different kinds of attachments develop. Some children learn to avoid a lot of situations to try to stay safe. Others try to move forward and get overly engaged with questions and presence and so forth to try to get needs met. We find as we're working with couples that those styles of attachment learned very early on in life play out in terms of how a marriage works or oftentimes doesn't, especially when issues of safety arise. Well, and what, what's true is because the safety is so foundational, that when I perceive that there is a threat, I intuitively begin to try to create safety for myself. And some of the ways I try to create safety may be valid and legitimate, and other ways that I try to create safety may actually be harmful and destructive. But I intuitively know I need to be safe. And so as a child, if I am not in a safe environment, I begin to create those systems that will create safety for myself. And it almost seems counterintuitive, but for that person who grew up in a safe environment, safety isn't as evident or as important. For the person who grew up in the unsafe environment, it becomes prioritized because I think they're trying to create something that was missing, that was so foundational when they were young. Mm -hmm. And for those who are intrigued by uh, Debbie bringing up attachment theories, uh, if you go back through our archived uh podcast, you'll find a, a series of uh, podcasts that our clinical director, Jim Farm, did uh, while we still had Mark uh, leading the podcast back in the Men of Valor program days. So if you want to learn more about attachment theories, uh, there's more content to, uh, to listen to uh, going back through our podcast mm -hmm. library. Mm -hmm. And as we're kind of talking about, there's a variety of different ways to understand safety and kind of what you've alluded to, Deb, is even self-examination uh, self of what do I do? You know, what are some of the patterns? What are some of the things I do to create safety in my current experiences based upon my history? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things uh, Mark and I always talked about was that we, we can tell for ourselves when we're dealing with an issue of safety because there is basically a tendency to want to control. And do you know how often when we're talking with couples, there is a complaint about one or the other of them is a very controlling person. When, when we hear that, we know that that is about anxiety. And anxiety is again about fear and fear is about safety. So it very much connects to this desire. 
once we can start examining that for ourselves, we may make some different choices about how we want to live life with that. I'll give an own, my own personal example is when, when I was young and, and even now, my mom is still alive. And, you know, what I know is in my family, um, doing money well, being responsible around money was a very important thing. It spoke a lot to your character of being a responsible person and being able to take care of yourself. And so that became a very important need of mine. Um, I did a great job, I thought, when I was a single person, but when I got married, Mark and I handled money differently. Um, and in fact, the way I saw him handle it made me very nervous and fearful, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and so, you know, my way of, uh, before we could talk about these issues, my, my way of trying to control that was to make sure every month all the bank statements were balanced to the penny. You know, they, everything had to be perfect there. Um, and it was just that deep desire. I got to do this right, you know, because this is what creates calm inside of me. So we all have those things. And um, when we can identify and own our own and share that with another person, we, we often get a lot more empathy from them than if we just show mm -hmm. up with our behaviors. You know, we tend to criticize how another person tries to control life to create safety for themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, and one, one of the ways kind of that along the lines of control is many times obsessive behavior or thinking is a way to create safety, um, getting overly focused on something. I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm aware within myself, you know, um, we live in Chicago, we live in a condo building, and it's very important to me that the doors are locked specifically at night. And many times it's not just checking them once, it's checking them twice or three times because I just need that reassurance that they are locked. And again, it, it's that sense of safety. I can feel secure, literally feel secure if I know my doors are locked. So they, this idea of safety can show up in a broad range and control can be one of them. Over-focus can be another one of them, um, but we can have those patterns. Um, appearance can be another one of them. If, if things look good on the outside, then that can create a sense of safety, how clean my house is, how uh, mowed my lawn is. But that sense of there is structure and order is another attempt to create safety. Mm -hmm. And for you, Beth, how, how does safety show up, you know, for you or with people that you work with? Yeah. Well, I, one of the things I was just thinking is I think it's so important that we are really compassionate and kind with ourselves as we think about this issue, because whatever I've developed to um, create safety for myself when I was younger was probably necessary, right? I didn't have that framework at the time, but, um, you know, like for me, it was being very responsible. Um, it was hustling to achieve a lot. And to show up way early as in more of an adult capacity than a child ever should. So I, I think one of the things that is so helpful about this, these conversations is that we're invited to see, okay, what am I doing now as an adult? Am I still over-functioning, which is exactly what that was when I was a child, right? Um, 
Am I uh, believing that my safety comes in being overly responsible? And when we don't examine those things, um, we sort of default, right, to what we knew to do to keep ourselves safe younger. And I, I think I, for those of you that are familiar with this construct that we talk about at Faithful and True, we, we talk about the idea of we have these parts of us, like our our child part, our survivor part, and our wise adult. Well, some of these things we're talking about came out of our survivor, right? That this is how we learned, in fact, to survive. The, the redemptive piece of this is that as a wise adult, I get to ask the question, is that still serving me, right? Is that still the best way I want to be safe? Um, or do I have some choices of other ways I want to do that? I think a, a great example of that is another way that safety can be created is through image management. If I look good, then I can be safe. And image management typically can lead to some level of deception, hiding, lying. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the men that come to our workshop, one of the things that has created the most chaos in their life is their tendency to be deceptive, to hide, to lie, to pretend. And it doesn't come out of this place of evil. It comes out of a desire to be safe. And typically what you were saying, Beth, is somewhere in their story, whatever was true, either they perceived was a threat or truly was a threat. So they begin to learn to hide to create safety. Well, even if at one point that might have served me, what we know is as a wise adult, that hiding line deception piece is no longer serving me, but is actually incredibly disruptive in our relationships. And that's what brings many of the men to the workshop is how much they've lied and hidden about mm -hmm. what was going on for them sexually in their lives. Yeah. Which I, I would just say, and Deb, I would imagine, you know, we're in sync with this. That right there is often the most chaotic part of the acting out for a spouse. And I'm not in any way minimizing, you know, the sexual acting out and all the chaos that creates. And there is this fundamental belief, I think, when we enter into a marriage that there is safety there because there won't be deception. There won't be lying. And so when that happens, um, again, it speaks to this primal need, right? And that can be so, so devastating and take quite a bit of time to heal. I think that's why I end up having these conversations so much with women, because um, having to figure out how to create safety when those things have happened, when there's been deception or lying, can be really, really challenging. Well, I am on the same. Well, oh, sorry, Greg. I was going to oh, say go ahead, I, I truly am on the same page as you are, Beth, about that and the the not telling the truth, lying, hiding, covering up in some ways. Um, we have found has been way more painful than even the behaviors that are found out. Um, yeah. Not telling the truth yeah. does create a lot of fear for any of us because the not knowing is what is so hard. I think as we begin to explore how early in life lying starts for many people, and, and we recognize and even research will say that one of the major reasons kids start lying is because they have been punished 
um, more severely than they feel is appropriate for what happened. And isn't it something mm. that a, a small child will start um, lying then about their behavior or what they've been accused of because they know that possibly what follows is a great amount of punishment. Punishment. Right? For others, yeah. they're trying to live up to an image that their parents have of them. And, um, mm -hmm. and so they lie about what they're doing or how well they're doing in school or, you know, they, they change that F into an A before they bring the page home um, because their, their whole image of who they are as a person uh, will be scrutinized if, if they try to tell the truth. So it's a very, very old way of coping with a safety issue. And mm -hmm. I think the more that mm -hmm. we can help wives see that too, we hopefully can depersonalize that um, some. Now, I'm not saying it's not something we still don't yeah. want in our marriages. Um, and yeah. will it be much more difficult for someone who has used that as a way to cope with safety for a long, long time to change than even mm -hmm. the sexual behavior itself? That is a truth. It will be the much harder thing yeah. to change. Well, and one of the things that we've talked about is when a couple is dealing with the same desire, in this case, the mm -hmm. desire to be safe, but they're approaching it from different perspectives. That's where some of the most chaotic aspects of the relationship are. So in this case, the wife is believing safety is in truth. The husband believes safety is in hiding. They're mm -hmm. both trying to create safety, but the approach is mm -hmm. significantly different. And so at the end of the experience, Nobody feels safe, and that's part of what creates the chaos. Mm -hmm. Part of what we work with men is to help them to understand you can be known and you can be safe because safety doesn't come from your wife's reaction. Mm -hmm. As long as my safety is dependent upon how somebody responds to me, I am going to want to manage those outcomes. And part of what, you know, for those of you that don't know, Beth and I are married, <laughs> and um, <laughs> What, what creates chaos is, um, you know, the example from my own life is I grew up with this message, basically, that my mom was fragile and I had to protect my mom from the truth, that she really wasn't able to hand it, um, handle it. So there was this distorted message that if you love someone, you hide from them. Well, I loved Beth, and so I wanted to love her well by hiding from her. She had a different understanding of love. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. So we, yeah. we've done quite a bit of work. How did that work out for you, as we say? As a, yeah. Uh, yes. That's it. Not very well. Well, yeah. Beth, well, Beth should feel very safe because Greg's locking the doors and windows three and four times yeah, a night. Right. So. Yes, I, I do. Yeah. So well, part of it is understanding not just what we experienced growing up, but how what we experienced growing up we're bringing into our current circumstances. Mm -hmm. And those, we talk about core beliefs a lot. Yes. Those those distorted core beliefs that we're still operating out of that are hurtful and destructive mm -hmm. to others. I think it's mm -hmm. important also to recognize that we can change. And so it's not an excuse to say, well, I used that when I was young and so therefore mm -hmm. you're gonna have to get used to it um, and feel safe right. with me because the truth is we can change. Um, sometimes we're not gonna mm -hmm. do it perfectly. And for those of us who have had more pain in our life or lack of safety, and we have more ways that we have tried to manage that, it is going to be harder for sure. And we may need other elements of therapy or help in order to change brain chemistry that is 
locked on our mm -hmm. response to something that we perceived or actually is dangerous. Um, and that's why we're here as professionals to help people change the things they want to change. Yeah, I oh, go ahead. Beth. I, I was just going to say, I think we're learning so much more about the need to address our body as we're seeking to be safe people, right? And live in safety because when our physiology is so stirred up and, um, we were so activated, we've got to find ways for that physiology to calm down before we can be a safe person, mm -hmm. right? Before we can even take an accurate assessment of whether a situation is safe. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful that we're, we're getting more body literate, if that mm -hmm. makes sense, that, you know, we're learning those things that um, in order for us to feel a uh, a visceral sense of safety in our bodies. We've got to learn some ways, like you were saying, um, different therapeutic techniques and so forth to help us calm mm -hmm. down. Well, one, one thing that is true is it is God's desire for us to be safe. And so God created a physiological response to there being a threat. The problem, though, is if I am constantly living under a threat or a perceived threat, then I'm asking my body to do something that it was not created to do. And that is live in this constant hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. I know the first time I was introduced to that concept of hypervigilance, there was something in me that, that goes, wow, this just rings so true for how I have lived, mm -hmm. where I'm constantly looking for that threat. Um, and my body wasn't created to constantly be looking for threat and that hypervigilance so eventually what was intended to be helpful and even to be create safety for me becomes something that is hurtful and destructive. Mm -hmm. So I have to learn to be wise and where are the legitimate threats that I need to be attentive to and what are some historic messages I have about threats that no longer are accurate, mm -hmm. um, that no longer are um, representative of what I'm actually mm -hmm. experiencing. One of the ways I like to talk about that, Greg, is to imagine ourselves with antennas up here. And, you know, when we've been hurt in certain ways or our safety's been compromised, our antennas go up a little higher about more things. And, and some of us, you know, live life with a lot of antennas up there and lots of things are triggering us about mm -hmm. safety. And so it's a hard way to live. It's hard on our bodies for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times our physical symptoms are portraying how much of this hypervigilance or our antenna watching up here is taking over the energy that we ideally could be using mm -hmm. for other more positive things in their life. So getting a handle on what that is, is one of the things we like to help people with. Again, we know it's possible to change. Um, and we also know the body keeps the score from these really difficult things, don't oh. we? From Bessel mm -hmm. van der Korps. A yeah. uh, wonderful book about that. Our memories drive us to continue to be hypervigilant unless we get very intentional about changing those things. Well, um, we're coming to the end of our first podcast. And um, as we've said, this is going to be a series. I can, there's so much mm -hmm. that can be said about this issue mm -hmm. of safety. It's so foundational. And each time I just want to leave with this message of hope that safety is possible. And safety comes through truth. It's the truth of who God is. It is the truth of who God has created me to be. Um, uh, safety can't be dependent upon my circumstances 
because I can't always be in charge of my circumstances. So what I can know is that what transcends my circumstances is the truth of God. So um, we're going to continue this conversation, but um, just to leave us with this sense of hope that no matter what my circumstances are, there can be safety because there can be truth. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Beth, for joining us on the podcast today. We look forward to having you back soon to continue the conversation about safety. And to our listeners, we thank you for your loyalty and uh, always coming and, and uh, listening or viewing our video podcasts as well. Uh, we've been just recently reviewing the numbers that are rolling in. Thanks to uh, Aaron Wellman, our uh, producer of the podcast and our director of social media. And we're just humbled by the great numbers that we see coming in. We'd like to uh, invite you to visit uh, our we're about to launch the, a brand new Faithful and True website, which will be coming very, very soon. And we invite you to check that out. Also, for any man who is out there struggling with unwanted sexual behaviors that they're having trouble controlling, check out our Men's Journey Workshop, which we have available every month here at Faithful and True. We also, on a quarterly basis, do the Women's Journey Workshop. And we also do the Couples Journey Workshop, which is very beneficial and helpful to couples. So thanks for joining us today. And we hope that this coming week is going to be a week for you that's filled with many blessings and great vision.